conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Davor here, and you're listening to Med Conversations. This is part two of our depression series, the evaluation of depression, and we're very lucky to have Dr. Dean Witty, psychiatry registrar, here to talk us through it. Hello, Dean. Welcome. Hey, Davor. Thanks for having me back. Awesome. So you, you may have listened to part one of depression, which was more looking at the epidemiology and the pathophysiology. Really interesting stuff. I personally really enjoyed that conversation. It wasn't super, super clinically relevant. Mm. This part definitely will be. This is mm. exactly what you'll see on the wards. More importantly, what you'll see in your OSCEs. Mm. Certainly a couple of weeds. <laughs> yeah, we will wander in the weeds sometimes as well, I'm sure. And I'm sure... I will lead us there personally, but we'll do our, we'll do our best to to try and point that out. You know, when when this is not really medical student level anymore. So, just brief uh, overview of what the podcast will be. So, we'll talk you through how to evaluate depression, how to take a history, how to do a mental state exam, all that stuff. And then, as we usually do, we've got a series of cases in which you can take that knowledge out for a spin. So just an overview of, of the depression evaluation, so the history and exams, so I'll just run through quickly what it is and then we'll go through each of those points in more detail in a moment. So in general, it's my preference whenever taking a history, and I imagine this is particularly the case in psychiatry, is to always start with the background and the context first. Because if you don't have that context, everything you learn about the presenting complaint is often irrelevant or in the wrong context or lead you down the wrong pathway. So that's how I always like to start. That's my personal preference. So in the case of evaluating depression, that means understanding their medical background, both their psychiatric comorbidities and their medical comorbidities. And then of course, their social background, so their general background, as well as recent stressors and family history, often forgotten, but very important as well. So that's kind of the context of the patient. And then after that, you drill down on why are they here today. So that means you're looking at the presenting symptoms. So you're starting with the depression symptoms. And then once you've understood those, it's really important to understand the impact on the patient's life. And then of course, you need to consider differential. So you need to go through some of the other possible things that this could be and ask questions around that. And then once you've done that history, the next step is the mental state exam. And then once you finish that, the collateral is actually really important in psychiatry as it is in, in parts of neurology and other parts of medicine as well, but very, very important in psychiatry. So that, that's the overview. And we'll, we'll go through each of those in, in a bit more detail now. So starting off with the, the background and context. So I kind of talked about it a little bit before, but what, what's your view, Dean? Is context really important in psychiatry as well? Mm, yeah, enormously. Um, we really like to use the formulation kind of the, which can be thought about as the, the reason that somebody's coming to see you with this problem today. And that's all context. Um, context is, is incredibly important. It, um, it guides, um, guides diagnosis, but it also kind of enriches the diagnosis as well. And it, it points in the direction of, you know, what we're, what we're going to do about this problem. And so to go through some of those bits of context that are particularly important, so we said medical comorbidities are really important. Do you want to just say a few things about that? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so medical comorbidities in, in psychiatry, but if we're, we're talking about depression here, um, are kind of the norm um, in that uh, in the, there's, there's a, there's a bi-directional relationship between um, medical issues, medical symptoms and, and depression where um, there's medical illnesses that can worsen depression and depression can certainly worsen just about any, any medical issue. Um, there's, 
uh, high rates of depression in, in medical illness. So um, the studies, well, the numbers do kind of vary a bit, but in some uh, inpatient settings, the numbers are as high as one in four, 25% medical inpatients will meet criteria for depression. It's not what I've uh, seen, but certainly in this study, that's that's what um, was what was found. Mm. And then also, um, interestingly, about 70% of people uh, with depression uh, do have at least one other medical diagnosis. Right, that's a staggering statistic, mm. 70%. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's particularly staggering when you think about depression um, does occur across the lifespan as well. I mean, it's less maybe less surprising if you're looking in, uh, you know, uh, old age uh, kind of populations but i mean for, for young people they probably shouldn't shouldn't be high proportions of people with other chronic illness yeah exactly yeah. yeah but as you say you know, it's a, that bi-directional nature that medical illnesses are going to make your depression worse and then of course depression is going to make your your medical illnesses worse as well but so, so many of these chronic diseases are lifestyle related right and it's really mm-hmm hard to take good care of yourself if you've got severe depression. So that, that's the medical comorbidities. So the other really important thing, obviously, is the psychiatric comorbidities. And my understanding is depression is, is much the same with psychiatric comorbidities. Misery loves company, as they say. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's right. So it's, again, it's it's the norm, even, even more so. I mean, there's, um, in, in depression, um, I don't mean for 70% to be the number of the day, but there's 70% comorbidity um, where there'll be another psychiatric diagnosis that can be made. Um, mo- most commonly anxiety, um, but then the kind of the others that are, you, you'd see commonly are substance abuse problems, um, PTSD, different trauma reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So really important to know about those comorbidities because uh, that can, that can inform uh, diagnosis formulation and, and also can guide treatment of course yeah so the next the next bit of the context for the patient is their social background so what kind of things are you asking in the social history and someone who you think might have depression or you want to understand their depression better yeah, yeah of course so in in psychiatry the the social background and we think about the, the developmental history is very very rich it's really important um and uh it's something that i always recommend as much as possible to take a, a a, a developmental history, even if it's just kind of an, an overview of, of somebody's kind of life um, and the, uh, how they've managed at different uh, times in their life, you know, particular focus on school and um, right. and you know, moving out of the family home and those um, very reliable times of, of stress. So is developmental history just like a life story of that patient basically or yeah. is it looking at the developmental milestones or that's only a small part of it i mentioned i mean that, that's a part of it but that's yeah. that's kind of the the signposts along the along the way of, yeah, um, yeah you're kind of looking for the for the story but you, you can do a fairly comprehensive developmental history pretty quickly um interesting how long does it take you just out of interest uh i mean it depends on how interesting the story is. <laughs> I, I tend to get distracted by shiny objects yeah and i can imagine the same thing yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so, uh, so I mean, the developmental history is really important to mm-hmm. get a background, but also the social history uh, is really important to get an understanding of who this person is today mm-hmm. and what their, you know, what their supports are, who who they live with, um, what you know, what who who they are, and what's what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this can kind of and and knowing if there's uh, particular stressors at the moment um, really. Uh, is is really important to know. If if you don't know about something big and stressful happening in somebody's life, there's a good chance that you just kind of 
you kind of miss kind of miss what's going on. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense, and that that applies to lots of medicine. But I imagine that's particularly the case in psychiatry. So that was really succinctly put. So social background. You want to get their life story, basically, which is their developmental history, but try not to take too long to do that. And then also you want to make sure you really understand who that person is today and is there anything stressful that's been going on recently. And then the final bit of background and context is the family history. So this is something I always forget and my consultants often send me back to to ask uh, more about it. But I imagine family history is increasingly important in, in depression as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. In the, in the mood disorders, but um, yeah, in, in, in depression... Um, we, we know that there's a, a strong genetic aspect to depression and uh, there's also the kind of the epigenetic element as well. But um, the, the numbers are kind of about one in 10 um, uh, uh, first degree relatives of somebody with depression will have depression themselves. Really, right. Yeah. And, and interestingly, the, the, the numbers are kind of the same for um, a first degree relative with bipolar disorder, which mm. just kind of shows that. This is a this you know this is a spectrum that they're they're probably quite well, have have a lot of similarities. Yeah, and we we've we've drawn put them in different boxes, but but nature hasn't necessarily mm. done that. Mm. Okay, so that's the background and context. Really key. You want to spend a lot of time doing that, and that'll really help you with the next stage of the history, which is looking at the presenting symptoms. So in terms of the depression symptoms, so these there's nine symptoms we spoke about it last time. Uh, just remind us, Dean, what are the nine symptoms, the checklist that you need to ask yeah. for, your, for your possibly depressed patients? So I'm, I'm going to decide to own the thing that I kind of went with on the fly last time. <laughs> Imagine that maestro driving down uh, the, the highway in a Corvette and, and hitting the gas. Mm-hmm. So mice, mice see gas. So if mm-hmm. we, go, we go through each of those. So, so M uh, is uh, mood. Uh, A is an anhedonia. Uh, e is eating. S is sleeping. T is tiredness or fatigue, C, concentration, G, guilt, um, A is um, sarcomotor agitation or sarcomotor retardation um, or slowing, which I tend to say because I've... And then the final suicidal ideation. Yeah. And that, that's the order that they appear in, um, in DSM. You, you can also divide it into... Um, emotions and symptoms that are you know three emotion symptoms three physical or activity symptoms and three cognitive that yeah i, I find just having that dumb mnemonic has meant that it's it's lodged in my brain that's awesome yeah. so three by three or most see gas All right so they're the symptoms and then listeners of this podcast will know that i always harp on about time courses the most important part of any history depression is no different i believe why is time course so so important in depression mm. Yeah, so it's, I mean, for the, the very uh, simple, not very satisfying answer is it's, it's necessary according to the DSM for making diagnoses, <laughs> um, but that's kind of a bit of a circular argument. Um, but it's, 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 it, it's really important to, to be able to differentiate um, and kind of understand what's, what's happening in front of you. Mm. Um, and it can really differentiate between whether this is a, a, you know, a recognizable syndrome or illness or whether this might be you know, normal fluctuations um, uh, of mood or a response to a to an understandable stressor. So it's, it's kind of a way of avoiding, um, well, I like to think about um, avoiding over-pathologizing. Yeah. I, I, I see that as being as, as much a part of our role as, as diagnosis. That's a really good way to put that. Okay, so then the other thing I want to talk, talk about the presenting symptoms with the specifier. So this is a little bit in the weeds, just to plant that flag there. 
but it is interesting and it's certainly important in real world psychiatry where they go a little bit beyond just the three by three, the mice gas. And, and there's all these other, other types of depression uh, that have specific, or we think probably different causes and, and more importantly, perhaps different treatments. So we'll just go through that quickly. So there's, there's five of them that I've got here. So anxious distress is one of them. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, yeah. So this, this will be the most common that you see. So probably two thirds of people with depression have also clinically significant symptoms of anxiety. So you know, you may see they might describe themselves as tense or restless or have fear of losing control or um, very commonly anxious ruminations. Mm -hmm. All right. So then there's depression with atypical features as well. So what's that? Yeah. So this is an interesting one where. Um, it's it's kind of symptoms that are the opposite of what you or what are common or what you might you might expect so um most commonly in depression if there's issues with eating it will be under eating or anorexia and loss of weight mm -hmm. um and similarly usually with sleep it's it's insomnia or inability to sleep that's an issue mm -hmm. um atypical features are the opposite so they're you know there's overeating hypersomnia mm -hmm. weight gain um Oh, hyperphagia, I apologize, um, and then yeah, sleeping um, too much. And then there's also um, typically in depression, we talk about there being a lack of reactivity in mood, um, but in, in an atypical depression, you, you might see still see that reactivity. There's also this thing called leaden paralysis, which I imagine Darwin is not very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really describe what it is at all. It's basically just feeling feeling heavy. Right, okay. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Just stealing. Yeah, no, that's, that's, par that's paralysis for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the other one that you've probably heard of, but I imagine is, is perhaps not that common, is catatonia. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not that common anymore. It, it, if you were looking in psych wards, 50, 100 years ago, this would have been what you were mostly seeing. That's um, really... Why? Is that a cultural difference or are treatments actually... Treatment. More, so yeah. tr treatment is a, is a big aspect of that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's... Uh, but, really I, it, but it is interesting because yeah. it doesn't feel like that's that that's enough of an explanation yeah. um, given you know, what our treatment options are. But um, anyway, in the weeds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Catatonia is a really, really interesting um, syndrome of um, primary psychotic uh, psychomotor disturbances kind of movement, a combination of movement disorder and um, uh, kind of psychological uh, symptoms. And it's this is this is in the weeds. I don't, I don't think you'd need to remember the of the the twelve possible symptoms, and it's it, it can be quite difficult to remember. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. they all have yeah. you know German terms and things. Yeah, the one the one only ones I remember learning and stick with you is a waxy flexibility where you, you move their limbs and then they stay in that uh, position. And then there's also echolalia where they just repeat back whatever you said, mm. but there's more and they're in German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Gegenhalten>. <laughs> All right. So the next one is depression with melancholic features. So what's that? Mm. So this, uh, I'll, I'll go through the symptoms first and then I'll describe what, what it's saying. So the, the symptoms are kind of prominent anhedonia, a uh, real loss of um, reactivity in, in mood and affect, uh, profound despondency. So it's you know, kind of a, a very, very severe, low, severely low mood. Mm. Um, and then the, the features that make it a bit easier to differentiate is it tends to be there's di what we call diurnal variation. So it's um, it, it changes 
the, the severity changes over the course of the day and it's worse in the morning um, and can be also associated with kind of early morning awakening, like you know, 3, 4 a.m. waking up. Um, tends to be associated with really marked psychomotor slowing um, mm-hmm. and yeah, really significant aspects of guilt and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And this this is kind of a standover from when we used to talk about depression as being biological or mm-hmm. um, environmental, mm-hmm. which I think we lost a little bit when we moved away from that because I think that does give us clarity. But if we think about mol- melancholic features, and this is like a this is kind of biological depression. There's probably more of a strongly biological element to it than hmm. what we see elsewhere. And are these the ones where antidepressants are yeah. particularly effective? And yeah. if I remember correctly from my med school days, the, the MAO inhibitors, yeah. the tricyclics seem to work yeah. really well, yeah. and okay. maybe even ECT. Yeah, that, that's right. So, yeah. And, and I, I think this, this kind of um, it points a bit to the direction of why these specifiers can be useful because mm-hmm. they, do, they do point to specific treatment but yeah typically the melancholic features will respond better to medication yeah, yeah. or medications and, and ect yeah yeah and the last one is depression with psychotic features so that's pretty straightforward i guess yeah yeah so yeah presence of delusions or hallucinations yeah. um, tends to be a marker of severity but not necessarily right okay so just once more so that there's there's five main specifiers that tend to be used so anxious distress the most common one that's two-thirds atypical features where everything's in reverse catatonia not that common anymore but used to be in the 50s melancholic features which is often what we used to call very biological depression and then finally depression with psychotic features so as we as we we talked about a little bit and we'll probably talk about it on part three the treatment podcast it's they're they're really important to better understand your your patient and perhaps give them some more directed therapy as we spoke about in part one depression is a very heterogeneous disease and and it's a broad umbrella for lots of different things so this this perhaps narrows that down a little bit more all right so that was the presenting symptoms part of the history so the next part that we that's really important to ask about is how is the patient being impacted by these symptoms or this possible depression depression so why is that important to ask about it and how do you ask about it yeah so so it's important to ask about how it's affecting the patient because um, in some ways, in a lot of ways, that's, that's kind of how, that's, that's what we use to try and work out whether something's actually a problem. If somebody's got these symptoms, but it's not really causing any problem, they, they're not perceiving a problem or, you know, the people them, around them aren't, then, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's arguable about whether it's actually a, a something that requires intervention at all. Mm. Um, but, but, but I guess... So that's the, and and also the the simple answer is um, that again DSM requires uh, <laughs> you need to clinical know significant distress yeah, yeah. or impairment in social occupational or other areas of functional um, functioning. So so it's, I mean it, it's it's important for that reason, but also on a more fundamental um, perspective, it, it is important. And um, I, I tend to just ask very directly. I and this is a good space to. Um, for kind of validating statements as well, you, know, you can say something like, um, "I mean, that sounds like it's been really hard for you. How's that been affecting you at work? How's that?" Yeah, been yeah, yeah. That's a nice way to put that in. Mm. Um, and 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 kind of similarly to you know, we we need to actually be able to name a problem because if we're if we're trying to manage and treat things that aren't actually causing too many issues, then you know, we our interventions may actually be making things worse, maybe Absolutely, bringing yeah. more harm in. So as, as you've alluded to a few times, a real problem in psychiatry is like 
to not try and over medicalize things and and you know this is a really simple line in the sand to draw to to try and stop that from happening so the most important and devastating impact of depression is of course suicide how do you ask about that and and what's important to ask about in a in a depression history mm, yeah so i mean the most important thing is to ask about it at all mm. um there there can be uh it can be a thing that's tempting to avoid because it can be difficult um and it can be uncomfortable um, but it's really important and um, it's uh, there's no evidence. Um, I, I know this is something that was talked about when I was in, in med student. I don't know if it was something that people used to think was the case, but there's no evidence that asking or talking about suicide increases risk at all. Yeah, that's um, definitely something that's thought to be mm, true. Yeah, yeah. It's You're not going to kind of incept the idea of suicide in someone's mind by asking them about it it's an important point yeah yeah um and so the um there's there's lots of risk factors there's lots of things that contribute um and you know we we think about the risk factors as being both static so elements of somebody's story that 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 we're not going to be able to change you know that's gender that's you know background it's the experiences that they've already had and then there's the dynamic factors, um, which are, which will change um, kind of day to day, but um, but that's probably a bit too much to talk about in, in this kind of setting. But mm. I, th- I think something that is a useful thing to to focus on is um, uh, or to, you know, to to guide our thinking is you can think about the four P's. So you can ask about previous suicide attempts, um, whether um, after after somebody has already said that they you know that they're having thoughts of suicide. Um, in order to get a sense of what the risk is, is like. Um, so previous um, suicide attempts, um, if they've got a plan and if, if they are, if they do have a suicide plan, kind of how, how well thought is it? How, um, how realistic is it? Uh, have there been steps or preparation taken uh, to kind of go along with that plan? And then uh, against that, what are the protective factors that are... Um, you know that are that are you know stopping somebody from acting, and and I, I tend to ask that really directly when when somebody talks about suicide, um, and they say I was thinking about it, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know it's it's something to to you know you want to be careful that you have the rapport, but I'll I'll, I'll might even ask what, what what stopped you? Why why didn't you mm. Um, mm. you know do what you were planning to do that day? Because um, people tend to be pretty upfront in in telling you the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a really sensitive way to do that. So that suicide is extremely important to ask about, as you said, and, and the four Ps were the previous attempts, a plan, any preparation that they've done, and protective factors, and that's important to ask about. Okay, so we, we've the next part on our journey on, on how to evaluate uh, a patient with depression or possible depression is you really need to have your in your mind what are the major differentials what could this be what could be presenting similarly and how do I differentiate between those differentials and depression so the biggest one as I understand it is probably bipolar so what are mm. the what are the key key things you think about obviously is is mania that's a giveaway mm. yeah and that's 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 the answer really okay. um, <laughs> yeah so with 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 all differentials in psychiatry and, and mm-hmm. elsewhere, taking a really good history will will, will guide you, and particularly a, a, a past history and getting a good understanding of who this mm-hmm. person is. So, if somebody's had a single manic episode, um, then and and oh, actually, if, if they've had a single manic episode, then that can be enough to give a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Okay, 
Um, right. So, so this one's perhaps a, a little bit trickier then. Uh, schizophrenia with major negative features. I'm not sure I'd be able to differentiate that as a non-psychiatrist. So what are, what are the hot tips? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because if you document it or if you kind of look at things on paper, it can be hard to differentiate. But there is something that's quite different about somebody with major negative features without a mood component to it. Mm. And it's part of that is what, what you feel when you're talking to somebody. Um, there's you know, that that's it's a it's a hard it's a really hard thing to get across and it might be something that you just develop over time. But, I imagine so. Yeah. But blunting is quite different to flat affect. Um, and when somebody's sad, you kind of feeling your own countertransference, and this is way in the weeds now. I apologise. <laughs> so I might actually just put a pin in that. Um, but when we think about schizophrenia with major negative features, it might look a bit like depression, but it doesn't feel like depression, and mm-hmm. that's not very helpful. So the things that are more helpful is previous history, time, course, and family history. Mm. Um, so if there's a strong family history of schizophrenia, and that will point you in that direction because there's not increased risk of schizophrenia in, um, in family doesn't really increase the risk of depression. Um, the, the presence of psychotic symptoms, particularly if they're mood incongruent so that's to say that they're they're psychotic kind of delusions that um that don't really fit with the feeling state of the person Mm -hmm. and again maybe a little bit in the weeds but it's it's a a useful differentiator Um, and particularly if there's psychosis outside of any mood disturbance then um then that's really pointing you away from depression yeah psychosis i suppose makes it easy but of course you do have depression with psychotic features as well Mm. But I think that's an important takeaway for non-psychiatrists and for juniors to say that it, it feels different and it's something that you, you get a bit of a handle on with more experience. There was a line I remember when I was a medical student that stuck with me. Uh, when you talk to someone with schizophrenia, there's there's a paucity of the inner world. It just hits you. And I suppose that's I suppose that's what you're talking about. I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't say I've really experienced much of that, but I can see how that would feel different to, to someone who's clearly very sad. All right, so the, ne- the next big one is a delirium. So this is a one that we'll often see as an inpatient mm. and, and, and really uh, common in, in medical wards. So what are your, what are your mm. tips to differentiate between delirium and depression? Mm. Yeah, so this, this is one where time course will, will, will definitely guide you in the right direction because yeah. delirium by, by definition is an acute infusional state. In the real world, that's it's not as clear cut as that. Um, you know, it's acute or fluctuations, and sometimes it goes for longer than what the textbooks will tell you. But but certainly, that's if if somebody a couple of days ago wasn't presenting anything like they are now, and and you know they're now acutely confused as um, impermanent attention, awareness, and cognition, then that's not how depression yeah presents. So time course again. So yeah, yeah, and it and it's re- it's really good to actually test those those domains as well and you can do it really quickly as well so the 4AT test is a, is a really good quick way of being able to kind of get some information which which is something that often isn't often isn't done um so you, you don't know if you don't ask mm-hmm. just briefly what's the 4AT test yeah sure so th- so the 4AT um is is just it's four elements so all starting with a the 4A test um and so the, 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 f- the first element is um, alertness. Um, then, and that's, that's pretty much either abnormal normal or abnormal. Um, 
and then uh, AMT, so abbreviated um, mental test, abbreviated mental test, I think. So, so that's essentially orientation. So you can ask kind of a few orientation questions if you're choosing for that. Um, then uh, and attention, uh, so testing that through you know, spelling world backwards, counting back from 100 by sevens, um, and then uh, acute change or fluctuation. And so th really simple, really quick, and that will give you a bit of an idea. Mm, um, whether it's depression or delirium. Mm. So 4AT, alertness, abbreviated mental test, attention, and an acute change. Okay, all right, so that's delirium. The final differential I wanted to talk about, which is very common in my practice, is is this dementia or is this depression, which is very common in psychogeriatrics, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. How do you differentiate? What are the hot with tips? Gr with great challenge. Okay. It, it, it can be really hard, and it's, yeah. it's something that yeah, psychogeriatricians often struggle with as well, and mm. the reason is it can be either or or both. Mm, <laughs> um, mm, mm, mm. Very commonly occur together. Mm, um, mm. And aspects of dementia, and I mean, dementias are, are the, the different dementias present differently, but um, but apathy can be a really pronounced element of particularly uh, kind of Alzheimer's dementia, I, th I think, but kind of all the dementias, and that, that can look a lot de like depression. Mm. But with, with dementia, you know, it would typically be insidious, um, other than you know, the what we see in more vascular dementia, but that's. Weeds again. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there'll be less fluctuations um, compared to delirium. So you know, differentiating dementia and delirium is is a is a common difficulty as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I guess in terms of talking about depression and, and dementia, um, the the term pseudo dementia can be really helpful. Um, it's a helpful concept to think about, where basically there's a false positive, or it appears like dementia but this is actually a person who's depressed and with, with treatment for their depression, their apparent cognitive deficits will improve as well. Mm -mm -mm. Really common comorbid um, dementia and depression. Mm. Um, and sometimes, and this, this, is, this is something that does generally, or that, that, that can happen, that the diagnosis can be backwards where there'll be a trial of an antidepressant and if the person gets better, then we call it depression in hindsight. Yeah, yeah which I think is a really reasonable approach. From a neurologist's perspective, I think the two most useful things in this case is a tincture of time, just wait and watch. You don't need to commit to a diagnosis necessarily. And as you say, just a trial, trial of antidepressants, and they're often mixed together. Uh, I remember a guy with, who'd been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia I'd saw, but he looked at his mini mentor and it just had stayed rock steady for like three, four years. And the diagnosis of Lewy body dementia had just like was completely consuming him and he mm. was so worried about it and so worried about being useless that that was the main driver and I think the main driver of all the symptoms really. It's really interesting. Okay, so that was the, the major differential. So the next thing we wanted to talk about was the mental state exam, the MSE, which is something that was really hammered into us in, in medical school and I, I believe it is an important part of psychiatric practice. So what, what are the main things you look for in, in a mental state exam in someone you think might, might have depression? Or what, what might you look for in an MCQ on mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. on someone with depression? Yeah, so um, in, in terms of the appearance of, of how the person's looking, you you might see evidence of not, not neglect and not looking after themselves, or or maybe evidence of self harm, which is probably less less common or yes less useful. Um, or you may see kind of evidence of uh, substance or or alcohol use. Mm. Um, then in terms of the behaviour. Um, it could be psychomotor slowing or agitation, um, limited kind of eye contact, um, rapport can be affected and you know, that 
leads to engagement as well. Um, speech often will be slow and there might be a decrease in what we call prosody, which is like the musicality of speech mm. um, and, and a dullness of the tone, which it's something if you hear, you, you, you really recognise. Um, mm. Then uh, the affect is, you know, the, the intensity, um, which we think about that as being kind of flat. Um, the range, which is, you know, often restricted quality which you know, is how somebody appears um, and you know, we can just use simple words for that we can say that somebody looks sad when they look sad mm-hmm. I find simple words can be really useful mm, um, yeah. and then yeah the, and then we get to the mood which is just basically I like to think about is just what the patient says that they're feeling yeah which is probably the single most important thing out of the whole MSE yeah. um, and then um, in terms of thoughts you know content we can um, there, there may be overvalued ideas or depressive. There, there may be kind of themes of depressive kind of elements, but there can also be um, delusions uh, you know, that are depressive or nihilistic or hopeless or delusions of guilt, um, and then also um, the presence um, of suicidal, homicidal ideation. Prob- probably more suicidal ideation. We need to think about here. It's, there's not really a, an increase in risk in, in homicide. Other That's than, a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stream often is will be decreased, um, and then the thought, the thought <laughs> in the form, there might be kind of a, a poverty of thought, or mm, mm. Um, in more severe, you know, catatonic cases, there could be some mutism as well. Mm. In terms of perception, uh, unless there's psychotic, um, uh, unless there's hallucinations, then this isn't as important. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, cogni- cognition often impaired, concentration, um, and then yeah, judgment inside. It, can be can be impaired for, for various reasons okay so that's a mental state exam so uh, lots of stuff there to draw out uh, when you're looking at patients and for mcqs but probably the most clinically relevant thing you said was the, the mood you know obviously what the patient says but how they're feeling is probably the single most important thing okay so the the last part of the history that's really important and perhaps a little bit neglected because it does require a bit of effort and that's the collateral in neurocognitive uh, work, we call it talking to the informant. I don't know if you guys use that, <laughs> use that language. But a collateral is critical. It's often people who are mentally ill perhaps don't have that much insight into themselves. Uh, is, that, is that basically it? Do you have yeah. anything else you wanted to add? No, that, 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 that's basically yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I know there's a few of my supervisors over the years have been very clear that the, the interview is not done until you've talked to somebody else who knows the patient yeah I, I think it's good advice and you, you're right in saying it can be time consuming and and difficult but um but it's it's really important yeah yeah okay all right so when you've done all of that then you can try and make a diagnosis so we'll go through this pretty quickly because we've talked uh, through a lot of this in in part one but so the the main depression diagnosis we're going to go through here so the major one for depression which is almost a synonym for depression, I suppose, is unipolar major depression, which previously was known as major depressive disorder. And you can then put on those uh, modifiers, those add-ons that we talked about. So you could say unipolar major depression with melancholic features would be, is my understanding, the exact right way to say it. Is that that correct? Uh, Yeah, I mean, major depressive disorder is still perfectly fine to say. That's what it is in the DSM. Yeah, yeah. okay, all right. And then some of the other depression diagnoses you, you might make. So there's persistent depressive disorder, which was previously known as dysthymia. 
And so wh- what's that, Dean? How do you make that diagnosis mm. just quickly? Yeah, so so that's time course, really. So yeah. it's um it's kind of you think about it as kind of a less de- less severe depression that goes for longer, but not necessarily. It can be can it, it's it's basically time course. So low mood and two other symptoms of depression that have gone on for more than two years. Okay, so the next the next depression diagnosis you can make is the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which we talked about last time, and that was just mm. just run us through what that is again mm. very quickly. Yeah, so that's that's a new diagnosis um, for child and adolescent um, age group, and it's basically it's um, there's lots of criteria, but it boils down to really intense um, temper tantrums or outbursts or kind of persistent negative mood. That lasts for more than one year. Um, diagnosed, um, that that come on after the age of six and before the age of ten, mm-hmm. and really that it, it exists as a diagnosis to stop kids being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's how you put it last time. That's useful. And then there's a bunch of of depression diagnoses that are related to specific contexts, which really hammers home that idea is why you need to understand the background and context really well. So you've got adjustment disorder with depressed mood, uh, which is when you've had an identifiable stressor within the last three months, postpartum depression, obviously within the perinatal period, premenstrual dysphoric disorder in the you know the period of, of menses, substance and medication-induced depressive disorder, and depressive disorder due to another medical condition. But basically, depression that's arised because of a specific thing, and, and you can make a separate diagnosis for that. But the major one is unipolar major depression or major depressive disorder. Before we moved on to the cases, there was one other question I wanted to ask about evaluation is is what role do investigations have in, in diagnosing someone with depression? Any at all? Is that, are there any blood tests or scans that you do in everyone or just in specific cases? Mm. So they don't have a role in terms of diagnosing depression, um, but they can be they can be useful um, to for, for context but also to um, exclude kind of other causes or contributions and then also, if we're thinking about starting medications, it's really important to get kind of baseline um, bloods for um, because you know we have medications that can you know, affect um, can affect the liver, can affect um, glucose and, um, and lipids and yeah um, yeah. So so in in terms of getting a baseline can be really useful. But also um, important to maybe get a urine drug screen, blood alcohol. Mm. Um, pregnancy testing and then there's kind of lots of psychometric testing we can do to try and formalize our um, our lines of questions and to um, and, and then that's also can be helpful to have a quantitative score to um, you know, as we treat somebody to try right. and so this is like a standardized questionnaire that mm. uh, you know says this person scores this much in there in terms of their depression scale yep. yeah yeah gotcha. there's, there's plenty you can choose from and then uh, it's also it's it's always good to do some kind of cognitive test as well yeah whether that's a 4AT we talked about before the MMSA or you can go more detailed with something like the RUDAS okay great so that's that's the evaluation of depression so we've, we've gone through how you do it and now we've got a bunch of cases so these cases are pretty detailed and and that's intentionally because in psychiatry, you do tend to be overwhelmed with information from the from the patient. You get a lot of information when you when you delve into people's past and their you know how their life is going. It's not like asking for chest pain when someone's got a got a heart attack. It's not it's not quite a checklist. So with that in mind, we've got some cases that there's a, a lot to listen to. And while while you're listening to it, try and draw out the really important things that really make your ears prick up. That oh, that's what 
this is that's particularly helpful information. And and then afterwards, Dean's going to take us through and, and tell us what he thinks the diagnosis is, but also what he thinks the really key bits of information are that, that helped him get to that diagnosis. All right, so we'll start with Crystal Smith. She's a 33-year-old stay-at-home mum. Uh, she came to an outpatient clinic seeking someone to talk to about feelings of despair that had intensified over the previous 8 to 10 months. So in terms of social history here, Miss Smith describes her as as having been an outgoing, friendly child. She grew up with her parents and three siblings. She recalled feeling quite upset at age 10 when her parents divorced and her mum remarried. Because of fights with other kids at school, she met with a school counsellor with whom she felt a bond. Unlike the psychiatrist she had recently consulted, Mrs Smith felt the counsellor did not get into my business and helped her recover. She said she became quieter as she entered junior high school with fewer friends and a little, and only a little interest in studying. She married her husband at age 20 and worked in retail sales until the birth of their first child when she was 23 years old. Miss Smith lived with her husband of 13 years and two school-aged children. Her husband's parents lived next door. She said her marriage was good, although her husband suggested she go see someone so that she would not be yelling at everyone all the time. While historically sociable, she rarely talked to her own mother and sisters, much less her friends. A regular, a regular churchgoer, she had quit attending because she felt her faith was weak. Her pastor had always been supportive, but she had not contacted him with her problems because he wouldn't want to hear about those kinds of issues. So that was the social history, lots of detail there. In terms of the past medical history, she denied any past or current use of prescribed medications other than a brief trial of the antidepressant medication that was given to her prior to seeing you. And in terms of psychiatric history, two months previously, Miss Smith had seen a psychiatrist for several weeks and received fluoxetine. She reluctantly gave it a try but discontinued it after it made her feel tired. So then moving on to the presenting complaint, uh, Miss Smith said she had begun to wake before dawn, feeling down and tearful. She had difficulty getting out of bed and completing her usual household activities. At times she felt guilty for not being her usual self. At other times, she became easily irritated and her husband and her in-laws for minor transgressions. She had previously relied on her mother-in-law to assist with the children, but she no longer entirely trusted her with that responsibility. That worry, in combination with her insomnia and fatigue, made it difficult for Miss Smith to get her children to school on time. In the past few months, she had lost six kilograms without dieting. She denied current suicidal ideation, saying she would never do something like that, but acknowledged having thought that she should just give up and that she would be better off dead. On MSE, Miss Smith was a casually groomed young woman who was coherent and goal-directed. She had difficulty making eye contact with a white middle-aged therapist. Uh, she was cooperative and mildly guarded, but slow to respond. She needed encouragement to elaborate her thinking. Uh, she was periodically tearful and generally appeared sad. She denied psychosis, although she reported occasionally feeling mistrustful of her family. She denied confusion, hallucinations, suicidality and homicidality. Cognition, insight and judgment were all considered normal. So as we, as we warned you, there's lots of information there. Hopefully you're able to take that all in and, and start thinking in your head about what the diagnosis might be. But Dean, what are, the, what are the really key features of this case? Kind of what would you draw out of that and present to your consultant mm. or write in your note or whatever else? Mm, yeah, sure. So it's obviously it's a very rich case with lots of lots of information. Yeah. Um, in terms of when we when we're honing in on you know this diagnosis, um, yeah, f- I'll, I'll kind of go through the, the the symptoms that kind of jumped out to me that you know uh, make us think about what what direction this this is going. So we've 
So Crystal, she's a she's a thirty three year old mother of two who's um had more than two weeks of um of low mood, um, which uh, is also coupled with um, anhedonia. She's um got anorexia, which is you know yeah she's um lost her appetite, which has resulted in pretty substantial weight loss. Um, she's having trouble sleeping with insomnia and fatigue. She is um, exhibiting pas- passive suicidal ideation. Um, there wasn't any comment about concentration or psychomotor um, slowing, but she did. But it did describe in the uh, mental state examination that there was latency of speech. So, so of those, um, that would that that's seven out of nine of the symptoms. Yeah, she and she meets those three by three symptoms easily. Yeah, yeah. and this is also coupled with um, her being very distressed with functional impairment. Um, mm. You know, not obviously church is very important to her, and she's she hasn't been attempting attending so. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's important to try and work out what um, what are the important things to people. Um, there's no indication of substance or medical cause, um, and no known family history. Um, so, from her symptoms, she really does describe these melancholic features. So, there's a um, loss of reactivity that's described in her mood, with really profound um, loss of joy and anhedonia, mm. and that diurnal variation that we see in in melancholia. No real clear some um, psychotic symptoms. You know there is that vague paranoia, but it doesn't seem to meet or to. to um, there's not enough information to suggest that that's um, meeting the the stage of of uh, delusion. Mm. Um, and she does also have this previous history of these other episodes, which we don't really know too much about. Um, which I'd I'd like to know a bit more about um, to get a kind of a richer idea of, of this lady, but. But certainly, from that information that we've got, this, she's she's very clearly experiencing a major depressive disorder that's um, kind of moderate, probably but moderate, but on the way to being severe, but with mm. with clear melancholic features. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that's that really biological depression that we were talking about before. All right, so ma- that was major depressive disorder, moderate with melancholic features. Okay, all right, so case number two, similarly, uh, lots of information here as well. So Yvonne Perez, she's a 23-year-old lady who was referred two weeks after giving her birth to a second child. She was referred by her breastfeeding nurse who was concerned about the patient's mood, flat affect and fatigue. So that's the intro. So then we'll dive into kind of the background and context for this patient. So she's an English-speaking Hispanic woman who had worked in a coffee shop until midway through her first pregnancy. She had been raised in a supportive home Uh, But she'd moved to a different region of the country where her husband had been transferred for work and she had no relatives there. No one in her family had seen a psychiatrist. Several family members, however, appeared to have been depressed on questioning. She had no personal prior psychiatric history uh, or treatment. She said that she'd been worried and unenthusiastic since finding out that she was pregnant. She and her husband had planned to wait a few years before having another child and her husband had made it clear that he would have preferred that she terminate the pregnancy. But she wouldn't do that because of her religion. So moving on to the presenting symptoms. So in the past two weeks, she had become increasingly dysphoric, hopeless and overwhelmed after the delivery. Breastfeeding was not going well and she had begun to believe her baby was rejecting me by refusing her breast, spitting up her milk and crying. Her baby had become very colicky, so she felt forced to hold him most of the day. She wondered whether she deserved this difficulty because she had not wanted the pregnancy. And so then finally, we've got the mental status exam. She was casually dressed, cooperative, but her eyes tended to drop to the floor when she spoke, and she spoke with a slow, uh, slow speech with increased latency. Her tone was flat, and she said her mood was low and her affect was constricted. 
She denied thoughts of suicide or homicide, and she denied any hallucinations and delusions, but she ruminated on the fact of whether this was punishment for not wanting the child. She was fully oriented and had no cognitive concerns. All right, so the analysis here. So lots of information here again. Uh, what, what are the important parts of this case and, and what diagnosis would you make? Mm. Yeah, so it, it, with, with Ivana, it's really important um, that she uh, is, is two weeks postpartum. That's, that's kind of front and centre in this, this story. Yeah, that's um, our context, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, the, it sounds like for at least the last couple of weeks, um, she's had a, a pretty broad range of, um, of symptoms, but it kind of sounds like they had been there previously as well. So those symptoms were kind of have a, have a think about it. So we've got kind of low mood, fatigue, um, the insomnia, psychomotor, um, psychomotor slowing, uh, guilt, poor concentration. Um, no comment on um, you know joy, anhedonia, and anorexia, mm. um, but really importantly, denies suicidal ideation and and something in this patient or this this group we need to also really ask about homicidal ideation and, and risk and she's to baby, it. right? Mm, yeah. yeah. So so she's so that's six out of the nine um, symptoms. Um, yeah. So that kind of gets her over the over the edge. But then if we think about the differentials, um, she's. Uh, no described manic episodes, um, which you know that's an important differential in this this group. Mm. Um, no, no evidence of substance use. Um, these there are these interesting kind of experiences that sound like they're in the direction of psychosis. These overvalued ideas of guilt that she mm. deserves punishment, but it really doesn't sound like it. It clearly meets the um, yeah. level. It kind of sounds like anxious ruminations more than anything else. Right. It doesn't sound like postpartum psychosis, which no. would be your your other major difference. Yeah, yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no no psych history, but really importantly, of a family history of depression. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that she's. It sounds like she's pretty socially isolated as well, yeah, and yeah. she isn't getting a lot of support, which we which we know is is. Um, a risk factor for what what the diagnosis in this lady would be, which is a, a major depressive disorder, um, probably of, yeah, of a moderate severity without psychotic features, um, with peripartum onset. Yeah, we could also just call this postpartum depression, right? Which yeah, is yeah, expressing that. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I mean, the reason I kind of um, explain that is that very commonly depression can um, can start in the antenatal period, as it did with this lady, mm-hmm. um, but the yeah, it's 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 more common postnatally. Um, the other thing that it's just worth thinking as a differential for this lady is um, it's really really common for women to feel a bit down and teary for a day or a few days, um, kind of as mu- as many as two weeks, and that's a something we call baby blues, mm-hmm. and that can be kind of mostly we say it's in about fifty percent, but it can be as as many as eighty percent. Yeah, it's. Yeah, we recently had a baby, and the midwife said for sure day three mm. it'll happen. Like that's just when the the hormones seem to change in some way, and and it just triggers this kind of crying reaction. Yeah, but that that's but not that's what we're saying. Very different, this. very yeah. different to this, and that's important. Very yeah. important point to make. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so next case, Barbara Rice. She's a 51 year old lady who was brought to ED with the chief complaint: "I feel like killing myself." So that's the opening sentence, and then we'll dive into the the context. So she denied any previous psychiatric history, but she had one sister that suffered from depression and she denied any history of mania or hypermania. Uh, she typically drank a glass of wine with dinner and had started drinking a second glass before bed in hopes of getting a night's sleep. 
She had been married to her husband for 20 years and they had three school-aged children. She had been employed with her current company for 13 years and she denied any illicit drug use. Her primary care physician had recognised the patient's depressed mood one week earlier and had prescribed sertraline and referred her for a psychiatric evaluation. So that's the context here. So in terms of why she's come to ED today, so she had begun to lose interest in life about four months earlier and during that time she reported depression every day for most of the day. Symptoms had been worsening for months. She had lost four kilograms, current weight was 47 kilograms, without dieting because she did not feel like eating. She had trouble falling asleep almost every night and woke at 3 a.m. several mornings per week. She had diminished energy, concentration and ability to do an administrative job at a dog food processing plant. She was convinced that she had made a mistake that would lead to the deaths of thousands of dogs. She expected that she would soon be arrested and would rather kill herself than go to prison. So the mental state state exam here, she was cooperative and exhibited exhibited psychomotor agitation. She answered most questions with short answers. Speech was of a normal rate and tone, and she denied having any hallucinations or unusual thoughts. She described the mistakes that she believed she'd made at work and insisted that she would soon be arrested for the deaths of dogs, but she insisted this was all true and not a delusion. Recent and remote memory were grossly intact. Okay, so what's the, what's the analysis here? What are the important parts of the case? Mm. So probably the, the thing that jumps out immediately is that this is someone to be worried about. <laughs> mm. Yeah, is, I guess that's that's yeah that's always the first question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But so so in, in this case, we have someone who's yeah so fifty one year old um, who's a married mother of, of three who's um, who's had four months of um, of a, a pretty full range of depressive symptoms, so depressed mood, anhedonia, poor appetite, and resultant waste, weight loss. Um, difficulty concentration, fatigue, guilty ruminations, and and psychomotor agitation as well. Um, and it's it's probably worth mentioning as well. Psychomotor agitation or agitated depression um, can is one of the features that um, we we worry about in terms of completed suicide. Really, that's interesting. Mm. Um, so because it's the the thing that's really important in this case is the suicidal ideation. So. Mm. Um, as we kind of talked about earlier, we if we think about the the four P's with her, um, she hasn't disclosed any previous attempts. There doesn't seem to be a clear plan. Doesn't really seem to be any kind of clear preparation. Um, and there are possibly some protective factors, but I mean that's something that we're just we're guessing. She hasn't kind of told us that. But she, but she does. The thing that makes it a bit different is that she is clearly psychotic. Um, yeah. So she has these um, these mood what we call mood congruent delusions of of guilt and punishment. Mm. Um, and she's she's really linking her psychosis to her suicidal ideation, which is 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 concerning. Mm. There's no no past psych history that's disclosed or um, elicited. Uh, there's no mention of mania, which would point us in an important differential. Um, I do wonder about the alcohol. Um, whether you know we. She she's saying that she's drinking two glasses of wine a night, and I think it was wine at least. Um, mm. And you know, we always need to think about whether people are under-reporting. Yep. You know that alcohol can contribute to depression as well. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's interesting, kind of thinking about you know she did commence sertraline, so we wonder if there's some element of insight, or we wonder about her compliance. But th- this is somebody to be worried about, and um, she's she's very clearly got a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, which is severe with mm. with psychotic features and. She almost certainly will need to either come into hospital or have very, very close community mon- management. Yeah. Okay. 
So yeah, the, the key takeaway point is be worried about this one. This is not someone you send home without talking to the psych reg for sure. Okay, all right, next case. So Diane Taylor, 35-year-old lab tech, she was referred uh, to the outpatient psychiatry department of an academic medical centre by the employee assistance program. Uh, she, her supervisor had referred Miss Taylor because she had become tearful while being mildly criticised during an otherwise positive annual performance review. Somewhat embarrassed, she told the consulting psychiatrist she'd just been feeling low for years and hearing criticism of her work had just been too much. So that's the opening statement. So the background and context here, so she was an only child. Growing up, she had a close relationship with her father. She described him a normal guy who liked to hunt and fish. And he liked to take her hiking. Her mother, a nurse, had stopped working shortly after giving birth and had seemed emotionally distant and depressed. Miss Taylor became depressed for the first time in high school when her father had re- was repeatedly hospitalised after developing leukaemia. At that time, she was treated with psychotherapy and responded well. She had no other psychiatric or medical history and her medications were a multivitamin and OCP. A native of New Zealand, Miss Taylor came to Australia to pursue graduate studies in chemistry. She left graduate school before completing a doctorate and began work as a lab, lab tech. Uh, she felt frustrated with her job, which she saw as a dead end, yet feared that she lacked the talent to find more satisfying work. As a result, she struggled with guilty feelings that she hadn't done much with her life. So in terms of the presenting symptoms, despite her troubles at work, Miss Taylor had felt that she could concentrate without difficulty. She denied ever having active suicidal thoughts, yet sometimes wondered, what is the point of life? When asked, she reported that she occasionally had trouble falling asleep. However, she denied any change in her weight or appetite. Although she occasionally would go out with her co-workers, she, she said she felt shy and awkward in social situations unless she knew the people well. She did enjoy jogging and the outdoors. Although her romantic relationships tended to not last long, she felt that her sex drive was normal. She noted that her symptoms waxed and waned, but had remained consistent over the past three years. She had no symptoms suggestive of mania or hypomania. So that's the case. So what's what's important about this one? Mm. So this this is a this is a good case in that it it's it sounds like a very common or maybe not common it sounds it sounds messy in the in the way that a lot of patients that we see are that have yeah it's a textbook uh, case but it doesn't actually sound like a textbook case isn't it yeah perhaps no clear answer yeah this one. yeah that, that, that's, like that's it but it but um but we'll, we'll, we'll talk through it i mean there's there's lots of relevant negatives here um which we'll, which we'll get to so this this is a lady who's, who's, who's um 35 um single female who's had um more than two years it sounds like about you know three years or more of um, some depressive symptoms, so low mood, guilty ruminations, and um, and, and kind of poor self esteem, which you know isn't isn't one of the nine, but it's sometimes combined with guilt. Mm. Um, but there's there's lots of elements of depression that she doesn't have. So there's no anhedonia, there's no changes to her, her appetite or her sleep, um, fatigue, concentration is okay. There's no psychomotor um, agitation or slowing, and and no suicidal ideation. Um, this is someone who uh, diagnosed, di- di- giving a diagnosis is kind of helpful, but it only takes us part of the way there. And this this is a person who really requires a, a formulation, I think, to understand who she is. And this is, you know, the context is really important. But there's there's clearly significant personality factors that are at play here. Um, it sounds like there's been an avoidance of intimacy throughout her life, um, social withdrawal and or social inhibition. 
and this this reaction, this real sensitivity to criticism um, that that is kind of precipitated um, the presentation. Um, so in terms of a diagnosis, though, because that's what, that's what we're doing here, um, mm. is th- so this, this would be a persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia. Um, but we, th- and, and as we do often see in dysthymia, we, we, it is often comorbid with, with personality vulnerabilities or, um, or other kind of anxiety disorders. So I, I do also wonder about you know, whether this lady has a social anxiety disorder or, or even whether she has kind of avoidant personality disorder or yeah, at least yeah. traits of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really nicely explained. So, you know, probably, I imagine there probably are times in life where a DSM diagnosis is super helpful, um, and other other ones where it's a little bit helpful. But as you said, a, f- a formulation and like a really detailed conversation with the psychiatrist maybe maybe more helpful in a case like this. Okay, all right, next one. Uh, so the opening statement here, so the psychiatry, psychiatric consultation liaison service at a large hospital was asked to rule out depression in Gabriella Trentino, a 65-year-old woman with a recurrent lung cancer after she was noted to display sad affect and tearfulness on morning rounds. So the background here, so she's 65, she's a widowed Italian homemaker with two grown sons. She'd just been admitted to the medical service for shortness of breath and she was subsequently found to a unilateral pleural effusion. She'd already been through several rounds of chemo. At the time of the consultation, she'd been awaiting the results of thoracentesis to assess for pulmonary metastases, which it would obviously be pretty bad news. She had never previously been especially depressed or anxious, but she had instead been the family's rock. She'd never seen a therapist, taken psychiatric medication, or used alcohol, opiates, or illicit drugs. Her family history was notable for a father who drank to excess, which she described as the reason that she'd never had a drink. So in terms of her presenting symptoms, she reported being ex- an extremely uh, she reported being extremely worried about the pending thoracentesis study. She knew that Mets would mean a death sentence. That's in quotations, and said, "I want to be alive for my son's marriage this year." She added tearfully, "I've been through so much with this illness already. When is it going to stop?" Miss Trentino endorsed poor sleep and impaired concentration since her admission to the hospital five days earlier. She had been eating less than usual. She said she was too sad and worried to do her usual daily crossword. She adamantly denied suicidal ideation, again speaking of her love for her two two children. So on mental state exam... On examination, the patient was a well-groomed woman sitting in bed with with oxygen nasal cannula in place, wringing her hands and dabbing at her eyes with a wet tissue. She was cooperative and coherent. She was visibly dysphoric with a constricted, worried affect. All right, so take us through. What's your analysis here? Mm. So I I think with this lady, it's it's good to look at the the context and the situation she's in, and it's it's quite a sad situation she's in. And it's, it's, she's in hospital, she's quite unwell, um, and it sounds like there's a real threat of, of, of deterioration and, and death. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's important to kind of keep in mind as we as we um, think about Miss Trentino. But uh, the if if we think about the development of her symptoms, is at a maximum they've only been present for the, the depressive symptoms, which are which are described, have only been present for for five days. Mm. So. So we can't be kind of thinking of a diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. You need two weeks for that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but th- those those symptoms being um, low mood, um, appetite, insomnia, um, decreased concentration. You know, she's possibly got metastatic lung cancer. Mm. Like a lot of those, and she's been in hospital for five days. Like yeah. she sleeps in hospital. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty under it's a pretty understandable reaction. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think particularly, you know, in if we think about relevant negatives, um, 
with her not having any previous psych history, um, no no substance or alcohol use, um, and I mean it, it is unclear what her medication regime is. So you know it's possible that if she's on you know steroids or something that could be contributing. Um, and um, I also do I wonder this is separate from diagnosis, but this this comment about her being the rock in the family, it's um. It's worth thinking about w- what will happen to the family if she's not able to be the rock anymore, mm. and that 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 could be something that you know, if there's issues that are starting to emerge on on the on the ward, it could be you know, not necessarily with the patient. Mm. Um, so then, if we think about the diagnosis, I mean, the two big possibilities here is that this is essentially a normal reaction to um, an understandable normal reaction. Mm. Um, but but she does meet criteria for an adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety and depressed mood um, yeah, yeah. as as well. Um, and then I mean the other differential we think about is whether this is you know if 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 this progresses and continues on this course you know it could be depression due to a mental illness or or just major depressive disorder. But certainly at the moment I'd be thinking that this is normal or this is an adjustment disorder. Yeah, um, yeah, very much in that grey zone of you know over medicalizing this. Etc. I suspect I'd be probably reacting much the same if I was in her situation. Okay, that's great. That was that was nicely analysed. All right, second last case. Uh, Pamela Kramer. She's a 43-year-old married librarian who presented to an outpatient mental health clinic with a long history of episodic depressions. So the background here is quite long, as this is a long history. So Miss Kramer said her memory about her first history of depression was a little bit fuzzy. Uh, so she brought in her husband, who had known her since college. They agreed that she had first become depressed in her teens and she had experienced at least five discrete periods of depression as an adult. These episodes re- generally included depressed mood, anergia, amotivation, hypersomnia, hyperphagia, deep feelings of guilt, decreased libido and mild to moderate suicidal ideation without any plans. Her depressions or episodes of depression were also punctuated by periods of too much energy, irritability, pressured speech and flight of ideas. These episodes of excess energy could last hours, days or even a couple of weeks. The depressed mood would not lift during these periods but she would at least be able to do a few things. When specifically asked, Miss Kramer's husband described distinctive times when Miss Kramer seemed unusually excited, happy, and self-confident, like a different person. She would talk fast, seem energized and optimistic, do the do the daily chores very efficiently, and start new projects. She would need little sleep and still be enthusiastic the next day. Miss Kramer recalled these periods, but said they felt normal. In response to a question about hypersexuality, Miss Kramer smiled for the only time during the interview saying that although her husband seemed to be including her good periods as part of her illness, she had not been, he had not been complaining when she had a longer such episode when they first started dating in college. Since then, she reported that these episodes were fairly frequent and lasted two to three days. Because of her periodic low, mo- low mood and thoughts of death, she had seen various psychiatrists since her mid-teenage years. Psychotherapy tended to work okay until she had another depressive episode when she would be unable to attend sessions and then they would just quit. Three antidepressant trials of adequate dosage and duration had been trialled and each of them associated with short-term relief. Both alone and in the presence of her husband, Miss Kramer denied a history of alcohol and substance abuse. A maternal aunt and maternal grandfather had been recurrently hospitalised for mania, although Miss Kramer was quick to point out she was not at all like them. So in terms of the most recent presentation, most recently she described depressed mood during the months uh, since she began a new job. 
She said she was preoccupied with concerns that her new boss and colleagues thought her work was inadequate and slow and that she was unfriendly. She had no energy and enthusiasm at home either and instead of playing with her children or talking to her husband, she tended to watch television for hours, overeat and sleep excessively. This had led to a 3 kilogram weight gain in just three weeks which made her feel even worse about herself. She had begun to cry several times a week which she reported as a sign that she knew the depression had returned. She had also begun begun to think often of death but had never attempted suicide. So on the mental state exam, she was a well-groomed, overweight woman who had averted her eyes and tended to speak very softly. No abnormal motor movements were noted, but her movements were constrained and she did not use hand gestures. Her mood was depressed. Her affect was sad and constricted. Her thought process was were fluid and but possibly slowed. Her thought content was notable for depressive content, including passive suicidal ideation without evidence of paranoia, hallucinations or delusions. Her insight and judgment were intact. So lots of, lots of information. That was a long one. But uh, what are the key things that you'd want to draw out of that case? Mm. Yeah, so a lot of information, um, but it, it does actually kind of go to show in this 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 kind of case, this presentation, you will often get, or you you often need this level of information in order to confidently make the diagnosis, um, yeah, which, which yeah. we'll get to. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So this is this is a forty three year old married mother who's um, uh, we don't have a clear time course, but she started a job a month ago and she's <laughs> had symptoms kind of since then. So we can guess that it's probably been been about four weeks of um, of uh. Depressive symptoms that also sound a bit kind of uh, atypical as well. So depressed mood, um, anger, and lack lack of energy, lack of motivation. Um, that uh, that hypersomnia um, rather than insomnia. Mm. So you're um, talking about that atypical depression mm, modifier. So yeah, she may yeah. have some of those features. Yeah. Um, hyperphagia, kind of excessive eating, mm. um, guilt, and passive um, suicidal ideation. Um, you know, she's she's mentioned suicidal ideation, so we want to think about the four Ps. There's no no previous attempts, plans, or preparation that, as far as we can tell, um, but uh, but also we haven't asked, so we don't <laughs> we don't know. Um, and you know there there are this you know, question about the protective factors, which we would need to ask her. Yeah, um, absolutely. She but she does very clearly describe these episodes of elevated mood, um, decreased need for sleep, flight of ideas, pressured, um, and um, being unusually uh, productive, uh, which which. Know, uh, uh, on the they they sound either hypomanic or manic, mm. but she hasn't had any hospitalizations, and this is a a bit of an uncomfortable space in differentiating hypomania from mania, where mm. um, it's severity, and the 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 marker is often used as hospitalization. That's so interesting. You, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not a very comfortable um, distinction. It's it's drawing a line where they, you know, where there kind of isn't one, and and there is actually a bit of a a push to um, to get rid of the idea of hypomania right. um, as a as a concept. That, that, that's certainly something that the College of Psychiatry in Australia is is pushing for. But that's mm-hmm. that's way in the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, and but there is this really strong family history of um, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. and um, and I I do also wonder she's um, a, about how she went with her pregnancies as well, and whether there was any relapses or symptoms during that that period particularly mm-hmm. these hypermanic episodes mm-hmm. um but the, so the diagnosis for this lady would be a bipolar 2 disorder so yep. that's where um largely episodes of um depression with um with um periods of, of hypomania um but ca- currently she has a um you know she's currently in a depressed episode 
um, which sounds about a moderate severity. Um, yeah. And and th- those kind of atypical features aren't, aren't uncommon in, in bipolar yeah. disorder. Yeah, so this case really demonstrates the importance of, of taking a detailed time course, going episode by episode and, and, and also digging out kind of what the differentials could be. It seems like this... You know, this bipolar could have been diagnosed a long time ago, which would have really changed her management. Mm. I, is that something you, that often happens in psychiatry, or it happens more than it more than it should, perhaps? Where yeah, bipolar I mean, is missed. Yeah, I, I do wonder if it was missed in this this yeah. lady because she's had three antidepressant trials, and yeah, um, that's that's can, that can be quite dangerous to um, to uh, have to have antidepressant treatment without any kind of mood stabilizer right, okay. um, cover in in somebody with bipolar disorder because you can precipitate a manic episode. Um, right. Yeah. So, I, so I, I wonder if the people who previously dis- uh, uh, prescribed those medications maybe hadn't taken this uh, this this comprehensive history that Darvall had. Yeah, of course, I totally took this history. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So, last case. So, you're three months into your internship. You're in a gen surge rotation. Not your favorite specialty, but good opportunity to learn a few things. The best thing about the rotation is that you're doing the rotation with Mahesh, one of your mates from med school. Mahesh is a pretty vivacious guy, also smart and a hard worker who wants to do surgery. So you were excited to work with him and let him do the hard yards. Initially, things are going well. You're working well as a team. Mahesh seems a bit stressed but excited. However, despite your best efforts, nothing really seems to be good enough for your registrar. Any little thing that is overlooked is enough to make him explode. There seem to be invisible expectations that you were somehow supposed to just know. You find yourself coming in early and early, up to an hour and a half before a morning surgical morning ward round, which is, God forbid, what time that is, to try and get things ready for your reg. It's never enough. Around this time, you notice some changes in Mahesh. Gone are the jokes. Gone is the enthusiasm. Everything he says is with a flat affect. What's going on here? Mm. This is an important case that, uh, yeah. that I think people need to be aware of. Yeah, definitely. So um, I think something that... You from from hearing this story and from uh, thinking about the situation, it's very clear that this is a this is a pressure cooker environment. This is there's there's demands that are being um, asked asked of um, both yourself and and um, your uh, your co your we're interns. We're co interns. Yeah, yeah, both both interns. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it sounds like the demands are incredibly high, and um, both you and your your colleague are. Uh, are, are responding to that as well, um, and I mean, there's there's the there's the two. Well, there's there's plenty of things to look at in this case, but it it sounds like both yourself. You can recognize in yourself that you're that this is a really challenging situation, but really you're you're noticing in Mahesh that something something's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I mean, if we think about, it's it's not necessarily good to think about diagnosing your friends, but no. but if we if we do think about this situation with a bit of um you know from taking a step back. We we do we uh, the three broad categories I would I would wonder about um, and they're all kind of a bit related as well. Mm. The, the first would be whether this is kind of a normal reaction, normal response to what's being asked of you. It sounds um, like whether this is just um, this this is just trying to survive and putting your head down and doing what you can to kind of get through the term. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you know we, we think about is whether this is whether there's a psychiatric diagnosis to be made either you know in probably more more in, in 
um, in in your colleague than in yourself in this um, <laughs> in this in this story. No, not that we're endorsing. No, no, kind no, of pu- no, pulling no. out the DSM four and say Mahesh. Yeah, look at this here. Look, look, this is I've, you. I've noticed your flat affect. Yeah, <laughs> I've, done, it, I've done a mental state, <laughs> and uh, it's not yeah. looking good. Yeah, it's not yeah. looking good, Mahesh. <laughs> Yeah, so like whether whether there's you know depressive spectrum disorder or yeah. whether this is kind of a spes- a stress spectrum, you know adjustment disorder with depressed mood. Mm-mm-mm. But then the third, which is really important, and that's probably what we'll kind of talk about for the remainder, is is, is burnout. Mm. And so burnout isn't considered a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, it's it's a work related syndrome where there's a um. Uh, w- where we, we think about and and it's not in the di- it's not in the DSM it's not a it it doesn't really um it doesn't the, the problem doesn't necessarily exist within the individual it it exists within the environment mm-hmm. but what but what the I guess the symptoms are uh, um the f- the first is um emotional exhaustion so that's you know getting to the end of the day and just being completely defeated mm-hmm. and um, depersonalization which um is uh, kind of another term for kind of lose, uh, kind of not feeling kind of in touch with yourself and your identity, and mm. often um, what comes along for the ride is uh, a lack of a lack of empathy, um, particularly in medicine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the third is a a sense of reduced personal accomplishment, or it can be kind of decreased work performance, mm. and so they're they're kind of the three features of burnout. And this is wildly common. Mm. Um, wild, uh, in, in the general population, um, 30% at one point in time will kind of meet the, I say threshold, it's not really a diagnosis, but we'll, we'll experience these, these three symptoms mm-hmm. together. Um, and, but in medicine, um, over the course of a career, the, it's, a, it's about 60%. Yeah, that's um, and if we think wild, about, but yeah, not surprising. Yeah, no, def- definitely not. Yeah. And it's something that's, it's, it's, it's very much... In the in the zeitgeist at the moment, because it probably looks like a lot of the the um, uh, w- what COVID has done to the workplace has um, has not exactly helped no. with burnout. Um, no, no. Uh, and and so yeah, in in, in medicine, it, um, the, there's about a thirty percent point prevalence. Wow. And so I'm I'm I, I don't mean to be saying these to to, to scare the med students who are <laughs> on their way through. Uh, you need um, to be aware of it. Yeah, yeah, it. and it's uh, it's good to be aware of because it, there's a lot of things that we can do to to manage. Mm-mm. And the, a lot of the per- so although I say that the um, this is an issue with the environment more than the individual, mm. there are personality traits that can predispose somebody to burning out. And interestingly, they're kind of the traits that make you a good person in a lot of ways. It makes you a good doctor. <laughs> Definitely or a good got, doctor. Got you, got you into pro- med school, pro- Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. Pro- the things that selected doctors are probably selecting the people who are most likely to burn out. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. perfectionism, obsessiveness, um, and then also kind of elements of martyrdom, of feeling that you know it's your responsibility to, mm. to be the one that... Um, mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's something that I'm sure we can all recognise in ourselves from yeah, time to no. time. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> uncomfortable, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and so that that's that's it's important to know about, and um, particularly um, when we when we know that suicide um, is you know it's it's a very 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 rare occurrence in the general population and in doctors, but the risk is higher in in doctors compared to the general population, mm. and and. It could be that burnout is part of an explanation in that, as as well as kind of psychiatric diagnoses. Yeah, yeah, I would suspect so. 
So the, the the more important question is is what would you do? What can we do to to help Mahesh and, and yourself as well? Mm, yeah. So th- I mean, this is a this is a complicated one where, um, as we were kind of alluding to before, you, you, we can't be going over the top with kind of diagnosing our friends. So mm. we do need to kind of clarify what our role is and and really uh, what what I would recommend is you know doing what we can to support our colleague through um, you know, validating and kind of respectfully raising the this is something that we've observed and we're you know, concerned. And that's that's can be a really tight rope to walk mm. because um, you know, we want to be supportive but without um without blaming or making Mahesh feel like um he hasn't been doing well enough at hiding yeah. um his um his insecurities and, you know, we don't want to be pushing in that direction. But but validating and and probably sharing our own experience um is is I think can be really powerful. Yeah. Um, it so is can I just add, particularly mm-hmm. between two guys, two guys in mm-hmm. a surgical rotation, yeah. Yeah. no less. Yeah. <laughs> very hard to have that conversation. Yeah. But, no, but, def- but important. I, and I think your tip about uh, being a little bit vulnerable and, and saying, "Look, I'm struggling. How mm-hmm. are you going?" Is, is probably a key thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think also before we kind of get into thinking about what we can do to help Mahesh, and it, at, the, at the same time, we we do need to think about whether this is something that is affecting. Um, uh, patient care in a in a kind of a direct way. So we, it's important to just keep that in mind. That um, it do, there's no indication that that's the case, and that's very rare for burnout to be contributing directly to harm to patient. And particularly, that's probably what people are most concerned about. Mm. But it is important to keep in mind because we we do have a a responsibility to our colleague, but also to the community. Mm-mm-mm. Um. It's probably pretty important to recommend um, independent psychological assessment. You know, not 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 be the one trying to diagnose your colleague, and and supportive counselling can be really useful. Um, so then, I guess if we think about management of burnout in a more general sense, not necessarily what we would do with ourselves and with Mahesh, mm-hmm. um, the 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 studies kind of suggest that the things that are most beneficial to somebody who is burning out. Oh, burning out or burnt out, um, probably the number one thing is changes to the work environment <laughs> to mm. um, to limit the um, the you know, the factors that are that are contributing to the burnout. Um, also, providing that validation or that's that you know, empathetic space and having some having a, a space to ventilate can be really useful and powerful and can um, can kind of uh, stop elements of the the perfectionism and the martyrdom that um, that can can lead to this space, um, and then also taking a break um, and exercise and meditation, they're they're all the things that tend to be at the top of the list of um, of what what helps. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's lots of other steps that we you know, we can take, but really the probably the number one thing is to recognize that it's happening Mm-mm-mm. and to not try and just kind of push through it, even though our workplaces often are built in a way to um, to make it very that. hard to do. To, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the thing, so burnout and depression um, can kind of sometimes be a little bit hard to, to differentiate, but probably one of the, the main things, um, other than severity, because um, burnout often will lead to depression, it can, can be thought about, um, although they're, they're different, can be thought about um as burnout gets more severe, it can lead to depression. But with burnout, it tends to the symptoms tend to resolve once the stresses 
taken away. Mm-mm. Whereas depression, that's not necessarily the case. Mm-mm-mm. Right. There was so much good information there, but uh, just to re-emphasize, the main point is, is to recognize it. And then uh, once you recognize it, a lot of the stuff is, is kind of common sense in a way. Um, but recognize it in yourself and your colleagues and you will definitely see it, I promise you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's very important to be aware of. Okay, all right, we've, we've reached the end. Thank you very much for sticking with us if you're still listening. So we just have some kind of main take-home messages um, that we wanted to go through before we sign off. So the the nine symptoms of of depression, what are they again, just very quickly, Dean? Mm, So mice see gas, so low mood, um, anhedonia, um, issues with eating, uh, issues with sleep, fatigue, uh, concentration, uh, psychomotor agitation or slowing, and suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Context is everything in medicine in general, but particularly in psychiatry, you need to go through their psychiatric context, their medical context, and particularly their their social and developmental context. Time course is also everything, particularly in psychiatry and in in depression. That's often the distinctive characteristic between some of of the different differentials. And differentials in general are really important, and perhaps just to highlight bipolar is really important. It can be dangerous if you misdiagnose that and it, and it seems to be sometimes and, it, and it's uh, pretty straightforward to just remember that that's a possible possible thing and to ask about mania and hypomania because to the patient, perhaps those episodes, particularly if they're a little bit hypermanic, don't seem like a pathology. So it's important to ask about. Collateral is absolutely essential. Um, you need to go talk to their informant. And then finally, probably the most important take-home message is that burnout is extremely common in medicine and can lead, lead to some like pretty nasty consequences and it's really important to recognise in yourself and, and the people around you. Thank you so much, Dean. That was a lot of your time. I really appreciate you going through that. There's a lot of wisdom that, that you dispelled. I learned a lot. I don't know if anyone's going to listen to it, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not actually recording. I'm, That's, I'm, we're just I'm fine talking into <laughs> the void. Yeah, we're just <laughs> chatting. We're just chatting. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, good to be here.